Hello and welcome. Well, here we are. 37 days since the dissolution of Parliament, 142 days since Boris Johnson first became Prime Minister, and 917 days since the last election. We finally reached the other side of possibly the most consequential and intense election campaign of modern times. And now we have the Parliament that will be running Britain for better or worse for the next five years, probably. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, Director of the Institute for Government, and general elections are like Christmas to us, particularly when they come at Christmas. There's lots of running around, late nights, you have to make polite conversation with people you might not like, and in the end, you just want to collapse with a drink. But there's no rest for us. On the special edition of Inside Briefing, we're going to make sense of what happened and see where it might lead British politics into the 2020s. Joining me and looking remarkably lively, despite having had about 45 minutes sleep each, we have, first, our senior fellow, Kath Haddon. Kath, hi. Hello. Our deputy director, Hannah White. Hello. The director of our Brexit programme, Joe Owen. Hi. And our chief economist, Gemma Tetlow. Hello. He's already done one long event this morning with us today. Kath, you're in the BBC Green Room all night. How did the exit poll go down? It's one of those weird things, isn't it? The mood is always a little bit flat because everyone's a bit sort of confused and stunned yeah i mean uh, the talk beforehand a lot of people were expecting a conservative majority throwing around numbers of you know 30 40 uh but in the end the size of it i think surprised many people uh but it quickly then turns into a sort of mass rush of politicians and commentators sort of rushing in and out of the green room sort of you know going on and off the telly and so forth and the rest of us just all trying to make sense of it all basically and just in terms of, if we look at history, how will this election be remembered? 1945 and 1979 and 1997? I think it feels a bit like a combination of 92 and 1979, a sort of, you know, a big seismic shift, certainly, but at the same time, quite a surprise for everyone. Um, and uh, But, it, you know, it has its own unique status, of Brexit, the way the effect it's had on the party, all the things we're going to talk about today, basically. So uh, I'm going to go for it's unique in its own right. OK, I was going to go for a 97. But uh, anyway, we can discuss all that. Hannah, I've just come back from Parliament. Security up everywhere. Parliament's probably going to be in session next week. How long does it take in a new Parliament for cliques to form? Well, we did see a lot of cliques in the last parliament. I think the whips with the nice big majority will be hoping that cliques will be less of a feature of this parliament. At least cliques won't have as much of an influence over the government's programme as they did last parliament. All that we'll have to see. Joe, the Conservative manifesto was very light on policy, apart from their big idea, the B word. Is this the end of the Brexit debate? Uh, I think it might be the end of uh, calls for a people's vote, uh, that kind of angle of Brexit, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing in your view. I think that kind of goes to bed by the time we've left in January. But there is so, so much yet still to come. (laughs) (laughs) But we're going to be leaving the European Union. We will leave the European Union, um, but that is just just the first staging post, really. There is then... um, Plenty more boring detail that's likely to become extremely political uh, over the next year or so. Joe and his team are not unemployed just yet. No, not yet. No, still some way to go. (laughs) Uh, A very political and very economic. Gemma, the pound uh, shot up um, when the the result came through, even though the markets have been counting on Boris winning. Yes, I mean, as Kath said, the news really on the night was the size of the majority for the Conservative government rather than the fact that they won a majority. I think for the markets, it it reflects the fact that a lot of the political uncertainty and the gridlock that there's been in Parliament Mm. has been resolved. This is a government who has a large enough majority to deliver whatever objectives they want. Um, 
there obviously remains quite a bit of uncertainty in the longer term about the outcome of Brexit, and certainly the pound is not back up where it was before the referendum in 2016. Not close, really. I mean, there's a lot of economic uncertainty exactly. about exactly what Brexit is going to mean. Exactly. Well, great. We're going to talk about all those things. We're going to talk about what's going to happen in the next parliament around the big issues in government, the constitution, parliament itself, all those promises for health and police and what they're going to cost, and, of course, Brexit itself. And there are massive questions about the future of the Union of the United Kingdom, which we're going to return to in more detail later in this programme. Brexit. Now, what happens next week? Let's start. I mean, Hannah, just take us through with Parliament coming back. How quickly can Boris Johnson get Brexit done? There's a few things that have to happen first. We have to uh, re-elect the Speaker, presumably. MPs have to sw- uh, swear in. And then we're expecting Queen's speech on Thursday and potentially a second reading of the Withdrawal Agreement Bill on the Friday. I think that will probably be enough for the government to signal that uh, if that passes with a big majority, as we'd expect now, um, that 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 is uh, you know done and dusted. That this is his new government who is going to deliver Brexit. I think they'll probably leave it there until mm. Parliament comes back mm. after Christmas, and then they'll get on with the remaining stages and pushing that legislation through the Lords so that it's on the statute book in time for us to leave on at the end of January. Well, we've heard lots about weekend working. How does that work? Yeah, they uh, they have. Well, we've been debating that actually this morning, and we think not about that... us weekend working. Well, we no, could. We, could. we no, have no. Been, we well, can so... we keep on, but <laughs> this is about the, the House of Lords. Right? Yeah, Hannah's come up with a solution. The problem is that at the moment, because they're not planned to sit on the weekend or on Friday, so you've got to be able to put down motions to say that that will happen. You've got to go through the process of doing that. But and normally they need to give notice of a motion to do that. Um, but we were wondering whether they would just do that without notice, which there are apparently precedents to do. Hmm. So what happens then? Um, Boris Johnson gets his legislation through, we leave the the European Union, and what then? So we leave uh, the institutions of the European Union on, uh, is it 11pm on the 31st Mm -hmm. of January, midnight Brussels time, um, and nothing really changes in practical terms. We enter a transition period where we are essentially members of the EU, but our voice and our position in the institutions have gone. Uh, and we have an 11-month transition period in which to negotiate everything about our future relationship with the EU, what our trade relationship will look like, what kind of security cooperation we'll have, what happens to flights, what happens to data. So there is still a huge amount to be settled. Um, the government can say Brexit is done in the sense that we have formally left the EU, but a lot mm. of the hard work about exactly what that means in practice and then what that means for domestic economic policy, what that means for our trade policy. All of these questions are still to be settled and we really didn't get much of an idea Mm. of the direction in the manifesto. They've got the political declaration which sets it out. So, you know, Boris This is about the future relationship. Yeah, and was saying that, you know, we know the direction of travel it's going to go in, but there's so much more detail that they've... And there's also all the stuff that we have to do with our domestic policy, things which don't have to be done by negotiation, but we're still going to have to pass legislation to sort out our new... Uh, immigration rules and things like that. I was just going to say in terms of the the deal they want to sign up to with the EU, there are really important discussions to be had about the trade-offs between greater access for some sectors versus others. What's the kind of trade-off that might come come up? What's what's a painful one? um, Do we prioritise alignment on regulations on goods, which would allow greater access for our manufacturing sector? How much are we willing to concede on access to UK fishing waters? Um, The 
government has obviously now picked up a lot of votes from working class northern midlands and some coastal fishing communities who may have an expectation that this government will prioritise what they see as being their interests around protecting those industries. But actually a large part of the UK economy focuses on services, which so far there's been very little clear commitment from Boris Johnson about the extent to which he is going to prioritise access to the UK services sector into Europe. And Johnson, I mean, we know... It's quite difficult to tell what Johnson's ideal version of Mm. Brexit is. I mean, it definitely wasn't clear during the referendum campaign. And then since then, he's kind of defined his position Mm. in opposition to Theresa May's. And at times, this might seem unfair, but he's kind of seemed like he's blown with the wind of where the support in the Conservative Party looks to be. And now now he's making the weather. He's got got enough of a comfortable majority that he can probably take his party with him unless he gets sort of a massive revolt. Um, So that means that he can actually work towards what he thinks is the right form of Brexit. But he's got another factor, isn't he, which we'll get on to later, which he's got to think about what happens to the union in all of this. And what we're coming yeah, at, and what... at the moment, Joseph, don't mention yeah. the union. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. But look, let me ask you all this. I mean, what, what is the you know biggest row with the European Union that could come up? And do you think Boris Johnson will compromise or is he going to say again, it's, it's, uh, it's no deal and try and take his party out? So, I think the first big row will be over timing mm. um, and... Johnson has made clear he wants to be quick. He wants this to be done by December 2020, the end of the transition period. He doesn't want to extend it. It was a manifesto commitment. And the EU will say, yep, we can do things quickly, but that means a few things. It means, A, this is basic, and it means, B, these are pretty much the terms you're going to have to accept. And that will be the first tussle around just setting the level of ambition of what is involved in the negotiations and what is just not You know, the EU could say services, we're not going to talk about those. We won't have time to do anything ambitious. Mm. Data, there's no way we can reach an agreement because agreement's unprecedented. We'll just make a unilateral decision. And And what about fish, which Gemma was just talking about? And fish. I mean, that one word. The Danish Prime Minister has already said today, hasn't she, that uh, that she'll be asking for things on that front? Already. So European Council meets today. Danish Prime Minister says looking forward to discussing uh, access to UK waters. And the Fishing Council that sets quotas will be happening on Monday. So whoever's Environment Secretary will be off to Brussels to hear exactly how much people want access to our fishing waters. And that will come up very, very quickly. The EU have said they want an agreement on that by the end of June. And this is something where having a large majority doesn't necessarily help Boris Johnson with uh, the EU because they will say, well, actually, you've got scope now. We we don't have to give you so many concessions because you can't argue any longer that we have to give those concessions or you won't get something through Parliament. You are so going to be really able to get able things to through use, Parliament. So to make, uh, Parliament uh, the, the tight position in Parliament mm. as, a, as a bargaining chip, Exactly, which is well known as something that people use in, in trade negotiations to say, well, I'm sorry, my room for manoeuvre is really limited. Now his room for manoeuvre is not limited and the EU will be very aware of that. Exactly. The EU are very good at when they do it. They say we've had to get agreement between 27 member states and this Mm. is our mandate. And, you know, there's no way that we can bend on this because it just won't go through, unfortunately. And Boris Johnson will turn up and they will be looking at his uh, majority and saying, great. Let's put that to good use. Mm. Fishing rights, we can make you swallow some things on regulations around state aid and competition policy. They will see that as an opportunity to possibly dial up their So they're going to push this hard. Well, this is something we're going to have to come back to um, over over the coming months. But anyway, that new four letter word, the F word, uh, could bring it all down, I guess. Uh, Hannah, can we just touch on what, what it's going to be 
like in Parliament with a majority. It's really quite a new thing. We've forgotten what it's like. And I think it will be new for uh, the vast majority of MPs. Um, it's sort of back to business as usual before 2010, really. Um, it will be much less, there will be much less of a role for backbenchers. In the last uh, parliament, we saw coalitions built, we saw mm. pressure exerted on the government so that uh, changes could be made to legislation. Backbenchers are just not going to have that leverage now. Opposition backbenchers don't have the numbers and government backbenchers won't be able to threaten to bring down the government or to pass amendments that the, that the government doesn't want because Boris Johnson will know that they, they don't have the numbers. So um, much less of a high-profile high role for a lot of uh, Is backbenchers, it worth their while turning up? So, it so, is, yeah. I mean, <laughs> look, okay, they they can't sort of see things through in the way they do, you know, put down an amendment to the Queen's speech and actually have a realistic op option of it, it getting through, unless for some reason, you know, they get large sections of the Conservative Party behind them. But that's the point. It becomes much more focused on issues. Mm. And, it, you know, previously, backbenchers would use a lot of their time to get issues raised, to get them in the media. And there are plenty of opportunities, private member bills, early day motions. But also the normal way of operating so in Parliament, which is to go behind the scenes to talk to your minister who's mm. in your party to influence them earlier in the process, to influence the legislation that gets brought forward rather than seeking to amend it once it's in the House. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's a really interesting point, that rather than the kind of ridiculously mundane process around standing orders that mm. became the kind of big show, actually their job will be trying to find stories and things that will resonate in the press to yeah. try and use external that killer question pressure. at PMQs exactly. or something. Yeah, Prime Minister's questions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you think there's room for more constitutional battles? I mean, even with a majority, are there some things in the Conservative manifesto that may actually uh, have constitutional implications? There are quite a few things that will cause concern for people um, because of the way it was worded in the Conservative manifesto. And we've been talking about this the last couple of years, a uh, couple of weeks. Um, Feels like years. <laughs> <laughs> the famous um, page 48, isn't it? The famous page 48, yeah. Well, and there's two things in particular that they focused on. Uh, one is the royal prerogative, which is an issue around calling general elections, but it's also been an issue over Brexit because the degree to which Parliament can actually get involved over international affairs, which is seen as an area that the executive has sort of sole control over. And what they might do there, we don't know. That's the problem. The manifesto is very vague. What they might try to do is to firm these up for the government, for ministers, um, you know, put the power to call an election back into the hands of the prime minister. Um, the other area, though, that they focused on is the role of the courts. And again, some language around the role that judicial review plays. But we also don't know what they were going to do there. Um, you know, and, and judges have bristled at this, haven't they? Thinking, is this going to be retaliation for the Supreme Court? Exactly. Um, and that's on one toes. of the concerns is that it'll be a reaction to what has happened in the last sort of year or so, rather than something that allows us to sort of think about what do we want from our constitution. Which could look vindictive and anti-democratic and all these kind Absolutely. of... Absolutely. Especially at a time when you want checks and balances in the system, when you've got a majority government, you know, you need all those different parts of it to work well. I, I wanted to swing this around, though, also to all the other stuff that he's going to have to be doing, uh, not just Brexit, even mm. though that is going to dominate. And he's made loads and loads of promises. And I was just wondering, do you, th do you think he can afford them all? I think the the situation in the public finances is going to be a lot more difficult than the Tory manifesto suggested and the government ministers have suggested up till now, perhaps even more than they realise themselves. And the reason for that is that the 
election manifestos and the last spending round were predicated on a set of forecasts that the OB Office for Budget Responsibility produced back in March last year. Uh, not last year, this year. Gosh, it seems a long time ago. Um, <laughs> since then, the economy has performed less well and tax revenues have been coming in less strongly. So almost certainly when the OBR produce their next set of forecasts for the forthcoming budget, the outlook is going to look weaker than it was and the government is going to have less headroom against their new fiscal targets. So even though they've now set out some fiscal targets that are looser than what Philip Hammond had, they're willing to borrow a bit more, particularly for investment. Actually, even despite that, it, they're going to struggle stay within their um, borrowing caps, given what they have said in their manifesto about tax. So on the, in terms of taxation, the manifesto is pretty light on specific policies, but they set out um, that they would not increase the rates of any of the three major broad-based taxes, income tax, NICs and uh, VAT, That's national insurance contributions. Yeah. Um, and they set out an aspiration to cut taxes in the longer term. So where, where are they going to get the money? I think that is a really... Good question. Um, it's quite how quickly this problem is going to play out. Um, I'm not quite sure, but there is a real tension between what was said in the manifesto about aspirations for world class public services, um, healthcare, improved education, more police. The manifesto didn't actually allocate a huge amount more money to any of those areas. And there are a lot of rising demands from an ageing population on services like social care and healthcare. So our own analysis um, in our performance tracker with SIPFA suggests that many public services are under pressure. Um, the performance of those services has declined and actually the money that's yet there may barely be enough to kind of maintain the current service. It certainly isn't enough to try and reverse And even if you go and do something like... Um recruit lots more police, you still then got to think about what happens about the courts and the prisons, because uh, you can't have the police, for example, arresting lots more people and there's no way for the justice system to to cope with all this. Exactly. And the, the spending round we had last year, uh, earlier this year rather, hasn't addressed those. So really big questions for this new government is... Um, how are they going to deliver on those sort of aspirations and how are they going to pay for it, um, given the constraints they put on themselves on tax? Having said that, I think a government with a large majority is one that may have the scope to actually address tax reform and perhaps tax raising, um, even though that wasn't something they have a mandate for from their manifesto. Does Whitehall have the scope to address it? Can civil servants actually get this all done? Uh, at the moment, I mean, they're just coming out of a year where it's been sort of backwards and forwards between no deal preparation, uh, sort of major pushes in Parliament, then all the election preparation as well. Um, of course, they will have capacity, but the issue is how quickly uh, this government wants to go into everything. And this is going to be really interesting because we're used to uh, the government basically being in a very short-term mentality of, go you know, lurching almost from crisis to crisis in minority government to one now that's got the ability to plan for a four-and-a-half-year term. So it can afford to do changes over a period of time and look to where it's going to be in terms of, you know, in a general election at that point, not have to worry about the electorate for the you know foreseeable future. No, they can't, as Boris Johnson was saying, take them for granted. He knows that some of the people, in his words, have lent the conservative votes. No, absolutely, they, they, they but may it, not but be. It does allow them to conservative voters do some policy areas, take a bit more time, and actually do them properly. Um, 
I think the question for adjust or not, I don't know. The question for politicians and for civil servants is is whether they can make that shift from being Mm. tactical to being strategic. Yeah. Because actually, it's always a tendency for political cycles to be short term. As you say, they've been particularly short term. Yeah. But actually, if you're looking now at a five year time horizon, it take they need quite a step back to think about how to approach that. And and also because you know new governments coming in always do are trying to do everything in a hurry. And what's interesting is that this does feel like a new government government coming in, even though actually quite a lot of them have been in power for over the last nine years. Yes, and Boris Johnson for, for you know, a bit of time him, himself. Joe, just at this moment, how many civil servants are working on Brexit? So by the end of March, we know the number will be 27,000. Um, the negotiations will cover pretty much every department. No mm. deal will still be running until the end of December 2020. They'll also have to be concurrently uh, preparing for an as-yet unnegotiated deal. Mm -hmm. So there will be a high pace still. It won't just because the parliamentary pace softens Mm. doesn't mean those people working on systems and processes and what readiness means will in any way slow down. And the negotiations themselves will also be extremely frantic. Well, that feels like a very big number, 27,000. Okay, still on numbers, a special election version of Speed Data with Gavin Freegard, the Santa of statistics. <laughs> Gavin, I don't think you get any warning at all about these labels you're going to be given every week. <laughs> it's, it's, it's always a joy. <laughs> <laughs> How many charts did you cook, cook up last night? Um, it's probably best not to count. Um, I think we're well into double figures and there'll be a lot more coming over the next few days, so do keep an eye on our Twitter feed. What have you got for us today? So I know how much Kath enjoys a quiz. So um, I didn't get very much sleep last night. Though. <laughs> yeah. so you did, you did win the last one, and yeah. it's and it's a history one, so oh, it's, it's on your home turf. So no pressure. Um, yesterday, the Labour Party won two hundred and two seats in the election. That is their worst performance since which general election? I feel like I'm cheating because I've already read your analysis of this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We'll already on our website. No, no, I saw the tweets as well. I'm not doing it. <laughs> All right, Gavin, you're going to have to tell fine, us. I'm those. Have I haven't to followed our Twitter feed. That's fine. Um, it's 1935 mm. when Labour won 154 seats. So a lot of people are looking at 1983 when Michael Foote won 209, though obviously Scotland uh, looked rather different back then. So another quiz question. How many seats did Labour gain last night? Mm. One. Very good. Putney. Putney. That was the only Labour gain uh, last night. Really painful. Um, but um, that was Justin Greening's old seat. It was indeed, and again, you know, people saying that Labour are doing a lot better in London and demographic changes and, and things like that. And of course, it's not been all plain sailing for the Conservatives, even though it's their largest majority since 1987. Um, they lost a cabinet minister yesterday, Zach Goldsmith, mm-hmm. the 24th minister attending cabinet to lose their seat uh, in an election since 1945, and um, they did lose a junior minister as well. So there are a few ministers that will need to be replaced over the next few days, which obviously we'll be keeping an eye on. And you'll be doing one of your charts on ministerial reshuffles. Indeed. Uh, Whenever it starts, we'll be ready. Great. Well, look, thanks very much indeed. Those are some of our most popular charts of all. There are so many questions arising from this general election, but perhaps the most pressing is what it means for the future of the United Kingdom itself. The huge win for the SNP means the prospect of a second independence referendum in Scotland has massively risen overnight. And the IFG has a new report out this week which looks at when and how 
a second referendum might take place and what would make people feel that it was legitimate if they did. I spoke to Akash Pan, an IFG senior fellow and one of the authors of the report. Akash, your brilliant report that you've produced with your team is absolutely flavour of the moment. It is what everyone is talking about. So tell us why Scottish independence is suddenly a live question. Well, it's been a, a, a bit of a bubbling question for a while, um, ever since the, the EU referendum in 2016, of course, that the SNP's uh, made the argument that um, Scotland should have the right to, to vote again on independence. Um, but following the, the election yesterday, um, it's very much, as you say, top of the agenda because Brexit is definitely now going to happen with the with the big Conservative majority. And yet Scotland has clearly rejected the Conservatives, elected uh, 48 um, SNP MPs out of 59 in total, with the SNP standing on a, on a clear manifesto commitment to both independence and to, uh, to oppose Brexit. So the SNP is going to be saying, we want another referendum. Does Boris Johnson have to agree? Boris Johnson doesn't have to agree, no. I mean, the legal position um, is that um, the Scottish Parliament cannot pass legislation that relates to the union between uh, England and Scotland, the 1707 union. Um, And that's generally understood, though it's never been tested in the courts, um, to mean that the Scottish Parliament cannot legislate for a referendum, even a non-binding referendum, on the subject of independence without the agreement of Westminster. And that agreement, of course, was forthcoming um, prior to the 2014 referendum when David Cameron's government accepted that at that point the SNP had a legitimate mandate. And what's the nature of this law? How far does it go back? Well, so this is the, uh, the, the basis of this is the Scotland Act 1998. So that's the, the legislation that established um, devolution that, that, that establishes the Scottish Parliament and the Scottish Government and sets out the powers of those institutions. Um, and to be specific, um, there is a, a section or a schedule of the Scotland Act that lists all the things that are reserved to Westminster. So the Scottish Parliament can pass legislation on anything as long as it's not listed as a reserved power. The Union, as I say, of 1707 is listed as a reserved power. This is going to be quite a contested point. We know already from what uh, the SNP um, are saying on the on the airwaves about this. So I just want to stay on the point for a second. Has international law got anything to say about this, about the rights of a, a part of a country to break away? So international law um, does um, recognise the, the right to self-determination of peoples. Um, I mean, this is something that was... Um, set out in the in the UN Charter and um, inspired, of course, um, many nations that achieved their their independence from uh, various empires, not least the British Empire after the Second World War. Um, but the general understanding, at least based on my <laughs> my understanding of that general understanding, is that there is a right to self determination, but that is not the same as a right to. Uh, to necessarily a right to secession. So that is breaking away. Yes. So 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 there isn't a right to declare unilateral um, independence from a, a larger sovereign state, um, except in exceptional circumstances, um, such as 
yes, if, there's, if there was a sort of colonial system or um, if there was uh, serious human rights violations, the kind of things that happened, of course, in the Balkans in the 90s. As international gives quite a lot of weight to the idea of sovereignty. Not absolute, but, but saying, look, uh, countries have quite a bit of right to determine what happens within them. So we've got all this to argue about. All right, so we're going to have the, the SNP in one corner saying that this general election we've just had gives us a mandate to demand another referendum. You've got Boris Johnson presumably in the other corner saying no. What happens? I think um, we're, we'll, we'll, we'll find out potentially um, exactly how hard of a line um, the two sides take. But yeah, based on what, we, what we've seen so far, it's, as you say, uh, the SNP saying we must have this power. We should have it now. We want to have a referendum in 2020. Boris Johnson and the Conservative Manifesto have been very clear that they're going to say no, nay, never, effectively. Um, so what does happen? Well, as we've discussed, um, the SNP, the Scottish government, doesn't appear to have any uh, legal recourse. Um, we don't have a written constitution in which the right to self-determination or anything similar um, is, is set out. So it's not clear what legal uh, route they could they could pursue right, to try and change the situation. Let's let's go through some of the the political routes, if mm. you like, the kind of different tools each side has. So on the Scottish government side, uh, would they have things like being able to hold opinion polls, being able to hold uh, an informal referendum, a not legally binding one, to show how much support there was? Uh, could they point to the Scottish Parliament elections in twenty twenty one as a as a, a show of support? Can they can they bring in these kind of things into the picture? As we discussed, I think um, the the idea of, of, of a sort of non-binding consultative referendum um, would potentially put them on uh, dodgy territory legally, because um, that would require legislation. Presumably, it would require the use of public money. They could be they could be taken to court. They the could UK be taken government to the Supreme could take court. them to court over that and said you're not really allowed to do that. Yes, or so could private actors as well. Um, and yeah, certainly legislation that, that tried to provide for a, a non-binding vote on independence. I would be highly surprised if that wasn't re- referred immediately to the Supreme Court by the, by the UK government. So I think that's a difficult route, though it has never been tested, it should be said. And there are some people who, who wonder whether the Supreme Court might, uh, might take a, a sort of more expansive view of, of the rights of, of Scotland to, 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 to take these decisions for themselves. Um, but then, as you say, we have the Scottish Parliament election, uh, not that far away, May 2021. It's a constant stream of votes and elections and referendums as far as Scotland's concerned for several years now. Um, and I think it's, it's inevitable now that assuming the Conservative government at Westminster holds its line, says no, um, that this is going to remain the burning uh, issue all the way up till May 2021. What about on Boris Johnson's side? If he wants to head off this pressure and he can see it getting noisier and noisier, what are the kind of things he could do perhaps to explore whether there was some middle ground to give Scotland more powers or more money or something? What's in that space for him? Well, I mean, we've argued this in in, in previous publications, actually, that, um, well, whoever had had won this election and whatever was going on uh, as far as the case for referendum is concerned... We think there is a need for a, a new approach to, uh, to, to, to the union. Um, so the type of things we suggest that um, the UK government should, should take very seriously now 
um, is, for example, they have to fix um, the, the broken relationship between the UK and Scottish parliaments, um, and they need to revive and probably strengthen the Sewell Convention, which is the convention that says Westminster does not normally legislate in devolved areas without the consent of the Scottish Parliament. And that has been a kind of key pillar of the relationship between London and Edinburgh since 1999. It's been used hundreds of times, but it was um, disregarded. It's a bit contentious whether it was actually breached, but it was it was not followed um, for the case of the EU Withdrawal Act. And that was very controversial, and it's led to uh, the Scottish government saying they're going to refuse consent for any further bills relating to Brexit, and those things are going to be coming back, presumably agriculture, fisheries, trade, and so well, on. Well, I wanted to ask you about exactly this point. Could, could the Scottish government make things very awkward uh, for the Prime Minister uh, on the Brexit front as he tries to get Brexit done? So if he said no to um, this referendum, can they get in the way of other things he's trying to do? I think um, if they can find ways to make life <laughs> awkward for Boris Johnson, they, that they're going to almost certainly... Um, do, uh, and there sounds as if there that, could yes. be quite a few opportunities in the Brexit space. Yeah, I mean, I think the the Brexit uh, legislation, so those bills I just mentioned, um, when they come back before Parliament uh, in 2020, presumably, or maybe even sooner, um, the normal process would be that they would be um, put to the Scottish Parliament to seek the consent of the Scottish Parliament because all of those bills, um, one way or the other, relate to or affect devolved powers. So I would very much um, expect the Scottish Government will just say, you must be joking, uh, we're not, we're not um, consenting to any of this stuff. And then if the UK Government needs to get that legislation through, which it presumably thinks it does, well they're going to have to wield the power of parliamentary sovereignty and push it through without consent, which they can do legally, but it's only going to strengthen the nationalist case that Westminster is disregarding the views of, of Scotland and its elected representatives. So it does get pretty messy. All right, let's jump forward to the hypothetical uh, situation where uh, the UK government, Boris Johnson, uh, has agreed, for whatever reason, that there should be this uh, second referendum. What have we learned from the Brexit referendum, from the first referendum, um, about how it should be held in order to give a sense that it really is legitimate? Well, I think the 2014 independence referendum, um, the absolutely crucial point about that was that um, it was agreed, the terms of it and the timing of it were agreed between the UK and Scottish government. So. There will need to be there would need to be negotiations between the two sides. They would need to agree a reasonable timeline. They would need to agree on things like is it going to be just a binary yes no question? Might there be an alternative sort of model put forward by the UK government for further devolution or something like that? So what's going to be on the ballot paper? What will be the role of the electoral commission? There's a whole set of important questions like that that they need to agree upon. And the role of the Electoral Commission would be in making sure that the question was really clear, that, that voters were going to understand what they, uh, what they were being asked. And one point that you've discussed in the report is, and I think drawing heavily on what we've uh, learned since Brexit, is that um, voters are actually going to have to understand what the, the SNP means by an alternative future outside uh, the UK. 
Yeah, so yeah, as you say, I mean, the Electoral Commission has this uh, role in assessing the intelligibility of referendum questions and whether there's any potential bias, for example, um, in the way that the, the, the question is set out. Um, so yeah, they would be expected to play that role. But as you say, one of the big lessons from the 2016 referendum, and we might have learned that lesson in 2014 had they voted, had Scotland voted yes, um, is that without um, clarity beforehand on the implications of a vote in, for change, um, then the, the, the period afterwards can be uh, very devis- divisive and, 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 and contested. So certainly I think um, if it's going to happen at some point, um, it shouldn't be rushed. We don't think it should happen certainly in 2020, as the SNP would like. If it does ever happen, um, both sides would need to take time to agree on the process that's going to be followed and to spell out in as much detail as possible what a yes vote would mean and potentially what the alternative offer is from the UK government. Akash, thank you very much. Before we go, all elections matter, but this one matters more than most. It's already changed the Conservative Party and the next term will change Britain. So what should we look out for in the first weeks of the year? Hannah. One of the things that always has to happen after an election is uh, select committees have to get set up. And I think Boris Johnson has been uh, accused, certainly in the election campaign, of avoiding scrutiny. The government won't want to establish a further reputation for that, uh, the new government. So I think we'll be hoping to see select committees set up quickly so that they can resume their scrutiny role of the government. And watch out if they're not set up. Joe, what do you reckon? So I'm going to go for by the end of January, I think we'll see the end of the Department for Exiting the European Union. Uh, Mm, From the IFG. So I think in part a kind of uh, political response to the fact that we'll leave the European Union at the end of January. But actually, it's much more about just the practical complications of the next phase and just Mm. what an awkward addition to Whitehall that department was and some of the friction it caused at a political level. Obviously, we saw... Two uh, Brexit secretaries resign. The other one vote against the government's own motion that he put forward. Um, And we've seen some problems within coordination in Whitehall as a result of that. So it will be seen as a big political gesture that we've got Brexit done. But actually, I think you kind of the big significance will be what it means for coordination uh, over the next uh, year or so. You've been arguing that really it's always been a department too many. Yeah, I think it's always been an awkward addition. Okay, great. We'll look out for that. Kath, for coming weeks. So the other thing that we saw yesterday, obviously, the opposition parties had a very bad night. Uh, Labour have said that, or Jeremy Corbyn has said that he's going to stay on for a period of time so that Labour can have a period of reflection before they choose a new leader sometime around April. So it'd be very interesting to see what reflection means for them and what all the uh, you know leadership candidates actually get round to doing. And meanwhile, the Liberal Democrats actually lost their leader uh, last night who lost her seat. So they now have interim leaders and will have to look to the future of their party as well. Reflection with no leader. Gemma? I think for me, one of the things that will be high on the new, new Chancellor's list of things to do will be to decide who's going to be the next Bank of England governor. We've known for a long time that Mark Carney would be standing down and a decision needs to be made fairly quickly about who that will replace him. Okay, great. And I'm going to look out for who's got the upper hand, the Chancellor or Dominic Cummings, Mm. in the next power struggle in Whitehall. And that's the end of this special election edition of Inside Briefing. We'll be back next week with one more edition before Christmas, guaranteed. As for exactly what will be in it, even we don't know at this stage, 
Elections tend to have that effect. But in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you haven't had enough of voting, why not head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a star rating? We hear the polls are still open. We're going home for a good night's sleep now. We suggest you do too, because it all starts again tomorrow morning. The IFG is going to be open as normal. Thank you for listening. See you next time.